possibly one of the most famous structures in the world, sitting atop the Acropolis in Athens, Greece, is the Parthenon. Dedicated to the goddess Athena, the patron deity of Athens, the temple was constructed between 447 and 432 BCE and is considered one of the finest examples of classical Greek architecture of the Doric order. Besides being a temple of religious significance, it was also used as the city and Athenian empire's treasury building. In the late 6th century, the Parthenon was converted into a Christian church honoring the Virgin Mary. It was around this time, it is believed, that the statue of Athena Parthenos, which stood within the interior of the building, was removed. The only known likeness of this statue can be found on vases and coins from the period and from contemporary descriptions. So, in other words, nobody really knows what it looked like. In the 1400s, the Ottoman Empire conquered Greece and the Parthenon was turned into a mosque. By the 1600s, the Turks were using the building as a gunpowder magazine, and during a bombardment of Athens by the Venetian army in 1656, a mortar round struck the temple and destroyed the center of the structure and caused the ceiling to collapse. From that point on, the building remained a ruin, and over the next 300 years, the frieze sculptures were looted from the building by first the Turks and then the British. Now let's fast forward to 1897. The state of Tennessee is celebrating its centennial, and Nashville had been nicknamed the Athens of the South, and they wanted to erect a monument to mark the grand occasion, and a replica of the Parthenon was chosen. Designed by Confederate military veteran and architect William Crawford Smith, the building was built to scale based upon archaeological descriptions from the British Museum. Originally constructed of wood and brick, covered with plaster, the Nashville Parthenon wasn't intended to last past the end of the centennial celebrations, but it became such a popular attraction, it was left standing. By 1920, it was severely in need of restoration, so it was completely rebuilt using reinforced concrete. In 1990, sculptor Alan LaCroix was commissioned to create a replica of the statue of Athena Parthenos. Using those surviving drawings and descriptions from the 5th and 6th century as guidelines. Now, whether that is what the statue looked like, again, nobody really knows. So, here we are in the middle of the American Bible Belt. There is a full-scale concrete reproduction of the greatest temple ever built to be dedicated to a Greek pagan goddess of war and wisdom. I wonder how many Tennesseans know what the name Parthenon actually means in the ancient Greek language, the apartment of the unmarried women. I find that amusing. This is episode 13. Welcome to the Brews Traveler, exploring the craft beer scene across North America, one craft brewery at a time. And now here's your host, the man who gets more MPP, that's miles per pint, than anybody, Alan Tatman. 
Thank you, Jessica. And hello, y'all, and greetings from Kiln, Mississippi, the hometown of Green Bay Packers Hall of Fame quarterback Brett Farr and one of my favorite breweries of all time, Lazy Magnolia Brewing Company. And I'm here on my South by Southeast tour, and this is my fourth stop out of the five. And I'll have an episode about these guys here in the next few weeks or so. But today we're going to talk about a place in Nashville I visited this past week, Yazoo Brewing Company. And I sat down with Linus Hall, founder and owner, and we talked about craft brewing, not only in Nashville, but also in Tennessee and the Bible Belt and some of the hurdles and hoops that he and others have had to leap through to get craft brewing started here in the great American South. We've also got a report from Tony Rehagen about the largest craft brewer in the United States and what he found out might be troublesome to many of you, but there's a lot of us that knew that this was almost inevitable. So let's get on over and head to the Athens of the South, Nashville, Tennessee, and Yazoo Brewing Company. And now we head on down the road with the Bruce Traveler. Where will the highway take us this week? Where will we lift a pint and who will we meet? Let's find out. Craft brewers all over the country since the craft beer revolution have had to work with a myriad of state legislation trying to get rules repealed, but the most confusing labyrinth had to be in the American South. Just a few samples of some of the stuff they had to get through. Georgia brewers for years couldn't sell growlers to their customers. In Texas, brewers couldn't tell visitors to their brewery where they could go and buy their beer. In South Carolina and Tennessee, any beer brewed that was higher than 6% ABV was subject to restrictions. In Tennessee, it was categorized as liquor, not beer and was taxed the same as spirits and could only be sold in liquor stores. In South Carolina, it was altogether illegal to sell any beer that was more than 6% alcohol. In an article on the subject of brewing in the South, Beer Advocate reported that those were just a few samples of the challenges faced by Southern craft brewers. Now, today's guest on the program, Linus Hall of Yazoo Brewing, he was quoted in this article as saying, the South never had the brewing culture and traditions that the Northeast did before Prohibition. And he added, it doesn't help that we're in the Bible Belt of the country as well, but he says, things are getting a lot better. The future looks bright for craft beer in the South. Now, some of the first laws tackled were caps on alcohol percentage in beer. Georgia's alcohol by volume limit was raised from 6 to 14% in 2004. North Carolina and South Carolina quickly followed suit in 2005 from 6 to 15%, and 2007, 6.2 to 17.5% respectively. Alabama's gourmet beer bill raised the ABV from 6% to 13.9 in 2009, and Mississippi raised the state's ABV limit from 6.3% to about 10% in March of 2012. But besides alcohol limits, many southern states had prohibition related to taxes. Breweries operating off-site brew pubs, antiquated distribution issues, on-premise sales for off-premise consumption, da-da-da-da-da-da, prohibitive home brewing regulations, and much, much more. 
In 2013, it finally became legal to make homebrew in Alabama and Mississippi. In Florida, it was illegal to sell 64-ounce growlers. The odd thing about this restriction is you could sell 32 and 128-ounce packaging. In Texas, tap rooms were altogether illegal for a number of years. Eventually, legislation in Texas would allow brew pubs to distribute off-site, production brewers to sell on-site, and small breweries to self-distribute. But another problem in Texas is that county and municipal laws often supersede state laws, making it just a whole hodgepodge of different rules and regulations which is still a major hindrance to craft brewers in the Lone Star State. One of the strategies of the pro-craft brewing lobby was to show how craft breweries could help economic development, tax revenues into state, county, and municipal coffers, as well as skilled employment and service employment opportunities that came along with the development of a craft brewery. Tennessee had a serious problem with tax structures, Linus will talk about a little bit later. There was a 17% wholesale tax on beer, the highest in the nation, making it difficult for breweries to grow as their beer became popular. Linus, that's who I'm going to talk to in a minute. He also noticed that the law was implemented in 1954 and that the same amount of the beer tax revenue per gallon rose every year due to inflation. As beer prices at the brewery level rise, this tax multiplies that price by 17%, creating a greater deterrent to expanding one's brewery. But Linus and his fellow brewers in Tennessee worked hard and they lobbied and they were able to get things moving in the right direction. And as I said last week, I sat down with him and we talked about these challenges and much more. So here it is, folks, your interview of the week. Hello, everybody, and coming to you from Nashville and Yazoo Brewing Company, and I'm here with owner Linus Hall, and it's a nice, cool day in Nashville for a change. Yeah, we've got a little bit of break in the weather. I, have a, I haven't been here for a number of years, uh, but it always the one thing I remembered about Nashville coming in the summer is prepare to sweat. So, yeah. well, anyway, cheers. Cheers to you. And, uh, yeah. thanks, thanks, for, thanks, for, no, thanks for having us in. And I'm drinking... Uh, the fruited goza here, and this is a, a really good interpretation of this style of beer. And I had it last night as well. So, so Linus, tell us, how did you get started in craft brewing? Well, it's, it's I guess, a pretty typical story, but um, I started homebrewing in college. I went to school up in Virginia, and my uh, third year there, we were living out in the country, uh, about 10 of us sitting in an old farmhouse. And I uh, liked to invite everybody out for parties, and so uh, two of the guys started a pot growing operation in the backyard. <laughs> and uh, I was like, ah, I was a little paranoid about that. But Copperhead said, hey. Road. Yeah. <laughs> so, I said, uh, so me and another guy I was uh, living there with, we started a, a homebrewing operation. So we got pretty good, and by the time I left college, you know, I was decent, I would say, and he had kind of lost interest in it. So I took all the equipment back with me. Kept homebrewing, ended up in Nashville, uh, where we, me and my wife settled down. And I was homebrewing up so much, I was giving it away to friends and stuff. And they're like, hey, you know, this is pretty good. You ought to uh, start your own brewery. And, you know, once you kind of have that idea planted in your head, uh, if you have a little bit of an entrepreneur, entrepreneurial spirit, um, I just couldn't, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And so, you know, I remember my wife and I were, were walking in the park one day, and, 
and I said, uh, I was talking about a beer label or an idea or something like that, and she turned around, and she kind of grabbed me by the lapel, and she said, look, either do it or shut up. I am so tired of us just talking about it. She said, I'll support us. You can quit your job. We can try to make a go of it. If it doesn't work, we can quit and get real jobs again. That's fabulous. And, uh, and here we are. What brought you to Nashville? You're a Mississippi native, right? Yeah, I grew up in uh, Vicksburg, Mississippi. In Vicksburg, um, okay. That's where the Yazoo River uh, meets right. the Mississippi River, and that's kind of where the name for Yazoo comes okay. from. Um, but I was uh, an engineer by, by profession, and they ended up working for Bridgestone Firestone. They're headquartered here right. in Nashville. So when I got a job with them, we moved up here to Nashville. Um, I worked for Bridgestone for about, about six or seven years. Uh, I don't know if you remember all the Ford Explorer and Firestone Tire debacle when they were... Yes. Yeah. yeah. I was, uh, right around then, I got kind of disillusioned with you know the corporate life, and, and the idea of starting on brewery had kind of popped into our heads. Great. So the name, you named it after the Yazoo River, which is from, your, from where you grew up. What's been the reaction to that name here in Nashville? Because Yazoo is not really associated with Music City. No, you know, and... Even though we, were, we love Nashville, that would be a great place to uh -huh. start the brewery. We're like, we wanted to kind of reflect our, our Delta roots. Great. And Yazoo seemed like a fun name to ask for a beer at the bar. Right. Um, something that people would remember. Right. And uh, it wasn't until later that we were just actually researching the history of that word. It's an old Indian word. Right. Um, that it was named uh, the river that ran through that area. They called it Yazoo, and it actually meant river of death. Right. So I'm like, okay, that's a great name for a beer. But yeah, the, the response has been fine. I mean, you know, people were kind of curious where it came from when they found out we were from Mississippi. Like, okay, oh, that, that makes explains sense. it. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. This is your second location for the right. brewery. Uh, tell us a little bit about the old location. You opened in 2003. Yeah, so we were scraping everything together, doing all the work ourselves, um, bought an old uh, equipment, uh, 10 barrel system from a brew pub in Iowa that had gone out of business. Um, and so we're looking for a location and didn't have much money. And so we found this old rundown car factory called Marathon Motor Works. Mm -hmm. um, it was built in the 1890s, I think. So a really old, big brick, big brick building. Um, and uh, we found the landlord was willing to kind of let us have free rent if we'd fix the space up for him. Right. So we renovated about uh, 5,000 square feet there. Um, you know, uh, bead blasted all the old brick, put the windows back in. So it was a really cool place. Um, and uh, that was in 2003, you know, got going, self-distributed in the back of my pickup truck for about a year, right. um, found some old bottling equipment that we put in, started bottling our beer in 2005, and just kind of kept going there. Did you find that there was a lot of hurdles that you had to go through with uh, liquor laws in, in the state of Tennessee? Yeah, you know, definitely in the, in the Bible Belt, the Southeast, right. um, there's all kinds of blue laws that are hard for startup breweries to kind of navigate. Um, are these getting more relaxed as people are accepting the fact of, uh, of craft beer? They are. You know, um, a lot of it was set up to kind of protect the distributors after prohibition. Right. And uh, didn't realize that there's actually small breweries that would be hurt by it. So um, we actually helped form a statewide guild of brewers. Um, and the first things we tackled were some of those laws. Uh, one of them was we had the highest beer taxes in the country. And it was a percentage of your, your wholesale price. So... Craft brewers being on the higher end of that actually were paying a whole lot more in taxes than the, than the big guys were. And so we, we managed to get that converted to a flat per gallon tax, which made it the same for everybody and actually benefit a lot of the, the local brewers. Um, and then we went after the, there was an artificial kind of cap on the alcohol percentage of what was considered beer in Tennessee, and it was capped at 6%. Anything over 6% was liquor. You had to buy it in a liquor store. You had to have a special license to brew it and sell it. 
and so we managed to get that raised up to 10%, which is um, you know fairly common for the rest of the varieties. Yeah. When did that kind of when did that all occur? Uh, the tax relief was somewhere around I want to say 2014. Okay, so it hadn't been very long. No, it hadn't been. No. And then they raised the cap on the alcohol was about I think 2017, so okay. not very long. Ago. No, last year. Yep. Yeah. Um, now your new your new facility here. How long have you been here? Well, it's interesting. We've been here since 2010, but we are are actually moving from this facility pretty soon. All right. Yeah, we've uh, you know we've kind of outgrown it. Um, logistics of getting uh, materials and trucks in and out of this neighborhood have the gotten gulch. tough. Yeah. Yeah. And for those of you who are not familiar with the Gulch in Nashville, this is a very very developed. Uh, I won't say a touristy, but kind of an upscale shopping area, and uh, it's the, the streets can be kind of. Higgledy piggledy and, and a little bit uh, narrow, as I found out driving the RV through through, through the through the streets down here. But uh, so, how many barrels you have operating here? Well, for about the last, I think four years, we haven't taken on any new markets because we kind of saw a cap to our growth here. Um, so we've been right around twenty four thousand barrels for a while. Um, and uh, we've also watched the, the land prices around here just go nuts. Um, right. You know, when we bought this building, it was fairly affordable. This was kind of an industrial area of town. You know, that's why it's called the Gulch. The, all the railroad tracks run through here. Right. Um, and now, like you said, it's right. super trendy. There's condos and, and high-rises everywhere. And so we're like, you know, we said, hey, it's time. We're selling this property, and we're using that to finance a, a new Fantastic. place. Fantastic. Where's your new place going to be? So it's about uh, eight miles north of here along the Cumberland River in a kind of a community called Madison. Okay. Uh, still part of Davidson County, which is, which is Nashville. Right. Um, but in more of a... Uh, I'd say not quite developed area. We'll have a little bit more room to grow. Annual production, you said, is what, 24,000 barrels? Yeah, we've kind of hovered around there for a while. How far is your distribution? Uh, we cover all of Tennessee, uh, Mississippi, where I'm from. Mm -hmm. um, and then we have kind of select markets. Uh, we start selling our beer in Charleston, South Carolina, which is doing pretty well. Um, and then we have a line of kind of specialty beers, our Embrace the Funk line. Oh, yeah. Um, that, you know, it's more of a niche product. And so we're selling some of that in New York City, you know, Denver, uh, Tampa, places like that. Your portfolio, it's quite diverse. I'm looking here, you've got an amber ale. What's Dos Perros? Uh, Dos Perros is our take on what I, I call a Mexican alt beer. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, not a lot of dark unit malt, so it's right. kind of rich and toasty. And uh, you've got a rye porter, a Hefeweizen. Uh, hoppy Double IPA and the Hop Perfect IPA. I had last night, I had your Hazy Peel New England style IPA, which was absolutely delicious. As I said, I'm drinking the Fruited Goza. I also had uh, Blood Orange uh, Berliner last night. I wasn't driving, I was walking. Okay. But so you've got a lot of beers. I can tell right now just by looking at your portfolio that you like to experiment. We do. I mean, you know, not only me, but a lot of our uh, our staff are, are homebrewers at heart, and, um, and it's fun to have new styles come out. Uh, we definitely use our our seasonal program to test out new batches um, that might turn into year round. Um, and that, you know, we're we're trying to be the you know Nashville's local brewery, and right. so that means you can't just dedicate all your resources to one style of beer. You've got to find things in your portfolio that everybody likes, or, right. or find one beer that everybody can find can find palatable. So what are your your, your year rounds? So our year rounds are our pale ale, um, kind of a classic American pale. Uh, Dos Perros, which you mentioned before, is a, kind of a Mexican amber. Mm -hmm. uh, Gerst is a, kind of an easy drinking amber ale, and Gerst was a brewery that was in Nashville in the right. 1800s. Uh, we kind of brought that back. 
Um, our Hefeweizen does really well in the summer, kind of a classic right. German-style Hefe. Uh, and then our hoppier beers, are super, like every brewery probably in the country, are really starting to take off. And so what have you got as for sale and package? If somebody's coming through Tennessee and they want to pick up a six-pack? Usually about six beers year-round. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to those ones we talked about, our, our Sly Rye Porter. Um, we have a, a smoked Imperial Stout called um, Sioux. Yeah, it's a really uh, fun one to drink, and uh, and then our seasonals are usually like four or five seasonals. All of these different types of beer that you've tried to brew over the years, was there one recipe that you had in mind and you were absolutely certain this was going to be the greatest beer ever, and it wasn't? Well, luckily uh, for us and luckily for our, our customers, we've got a, a pilot system that we test everything out on, <laughs> and uh, hopefully all the mistakes get weeded out that way. But yeah, I can definitely remember some ones that I thought were going to be fantastic. Um, you know, I had a, a cilantro beer that I thought was going to be great, <laughs> and it turned out awful. Um, uh, I'm not a big pumpkin beer fan. I after I'm sorry, guys. I you, those of you who listen don't know this. I hate pumpkin <laughs> beers. I don't like pumpkin pie. So I hate pumpkin beers. Yeah, I had a I had a, a horrible experience with one of those too. So. Yeah, that's, yeah. But yeah, cilantro. You know, I think that would be good, but it's not. <laughs> what were you trying to do? Like a, a light Mexican I style, like a cream, lock, ale, with a cream ale with cilantro in it. Sounds good, right? Yeah, it's not good. No, fifteen years. Yep. What's the best day that Yazoo Brewing has ever had? Hmm. Yazoo. I said Yazoo. We had an argument about this last night. <laughs> yeah. So, hey, like I said before, uh, Yazoo, Yazoo. Hopefully, it means they're ordering our beer, and that's all. Well, I know better. I know better. We had this conversation before the interview, and I, I know better than to say Yazoo. It's Yazoo. So anyway, but anyway, what's the best day you've ever had? Best day. Well, I remember a really fun day. Uh, it was really early on in our history. Um, I'm a head brewer, Zach, and I had gone out to Great American Beer Festival in Denver. And I uh, had no expectations of winning anything, but we had entered our, our German-style Hefe in the competition. And lo and behold, you know, we're, we're going through, they announced the bronze medal first, you know, they announced the silver medal first. And I was like, okay. And sure enough, we won gold medal for, for Hefebites. And Congratulations. I guess that was 2004, so the first year we won. Wow. And uh, so that was a lot of fun because we took turns wearing the medal all the rest of the night. <laughs> and everybody bought us beer everywhere we went. So that, that was a lot of fun. Was Hefeweizen one of those that you kind of perfected as a home brewer? You know, I, I, I brewed some, but it's it's a difficult one to make on yeah. a small scale. Right. And, uh, you know, we, I think we've gotten pretty good at it by now after 15 years. Right. Um, but, yeah, it's a, it's a really simple recipe, but it's a really hard one to get right, right. with all the, the fermentation characteristics that you have to have. Tell us something about the industry that, when, when you after you got involved in it, that you didn't expect or kind of surprised you? Um, you know, really how much uh, control distributors have over um, what's on tap at each bar, mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, it, that really surprised me. I knew it, you know, intellectually, but to kind of go out and try to hand sell your beer, self-distribute, that, that was kind of an eye-opener for right. me. Um, and so we, we kind of gritted that out for about a year before we realized that we weren't getting into some of the chains, we weren't getting into the grocery stores unless we were with a distributor. Yeah, yeah. the key, I think, to the industry is getting with a good distributor, somebody that oh, belie- yeah. somebody believes in craft beer. It's 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 more important even than a, than a marriage. It's harder to get out oh, of. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you have to have support. Um, you have to have share of mind. Right. Uh, you've got to have a good partner, basically. 
What challenges do you foresee coming in the industry for you and for the industry wide? Well, you know, for, for breweries our size, um, we're kind of caught in the middle right now. You know, we've got, um, one, we're 15 years old, so we're not the, the shiny new brewery anymore. Um, 15 years in the beer business is like, it's like dog years, I think, you know, it's probably means we're approaching 100 right now. Um, and so you're seeing a lot of uh, new breweries starting up a lot smaller, content to just be taproom only, maybe with a few kegs out in distribution. Um, and then on the other end, you're seeing a lot of uh, kind of regional and national craft brands, some of them who have the, you know, the might of Anheuser-Busch and Miller Coors behind right. them, uh, you know, squeezing pricing, squeezing shelf space, and, and especially in Chain and Kroger and Publix and places like that. Um, and so it's, it's hard to grow outside of your, your home region right now because, you know, one, every, every home region now has a local brewery when you think about it. Um, and so you're coming in, you're no longer, you know, relevant in a lot of cases to, to the local scene. Right. Um, and then you don't have the marketing and, and muscle that the big guys have. Right. So um, we kind of saw this coming. That's why we haven't opened up any new markets in a while. You know, we're, we're trying to be strong as we can in our home market. Make sure we're not leaving anything, you know, low-hanging fruit here. And, as, you know, as you said, you listened to the Dan Carey interview, and, I mean, that's what he and Deb decided they were yeah, going to do. Yeah, I'm big fans of that philosophy. Yeah. They're, they're definitely doing it the right and way. If, for those of you who haven't listened to all the episodes, that's the new Glarus episode. You need to go back and pick that one up. That seems to be a common concern among everybody that's your size, Yeah, you know. And so the other thing I see is a lot of the... A lot of the styles that are really super popular now are, are hard to get outside of a, 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 a taproom experience, I guess. Right. You know, we were talking about uh, hazy IPAs, New England style IPAs, you know. Those are intentionally made that they don't package well, they don't travel well, you have to get them at the source. And I think the problem I see is a lot of those brewers are going to want to continue to grow. They are going to have to start packaging their beer and getting out to distribution. And when they do, it's going to be a style that you know, really takes a whole lot of care to get to the customer right. right. And when they have a bad experience, they might write off that brewery altogether. So I see that as a big problem for a lot of the small breweries that are putting all their eggs in that basket. Anything that uh, fans of Yazoo can expect coming down the river here soon? You know, we're coming up on our 15th anniversary in October. So Fabulous. we've got a fun party lined up for the 20th that Saturday. Um, and then we're really focused after that on, on making this transition to our new property up in Madison. When do you foresee that happening? You know, I've, I've been through this before, so I know there's always delays. Um, but we're shooting for the summer of next year. Yeah. Well, good. Yeah. Well, I like to end these interviews with the lightning round. Oh, no, I was uh, dreading this one. <laughs> so, anyway, these uh, your category is things that are associated with Nashville. Okay. All right? So... Number one, Ryman Auditorium or Opryland? Oh, Ryman Auditorium. Very good. Number two, Patsy Cline or Dolly Parton? Hmm. That's a, that's a good one. I'd say Dolly Parton because she's still still kicking. Johnny Cash or Merle Haggard? Neither. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm big fans of both, uh, but Johnny Cash. Steve Earle or Towns Van Zandt? I just saw Steve Earle play last Sunday, and uh, I think I'd say Towns is more of a Texas guy. So, yeah, Steve Earle. There you go. And number five, and I know what you're going to say on this one: the Titans or the Predators? <laughs> uh, the Predators have had a better track record for a while now. 
and I'm, you're a hockey fan from Mississippi, are you? I had to be. I had to learn a lot when I moved up. Right. There. Well, I tell you what, we're planning on coming down. I'm a big blues fan. Okay. All right. All right. I'm going to try to get tickets, and we're going to come down in the winter, and we'll go take in a Blues Predators game. Man, the Predators, it's a lot of fun. It is. It's isn't right it? on Broadway. You spill out after the game onto all the honky tonks and music. It's it's a good good. It's a great experience. Really. Well, I'll, we'll we'll get something hooked up this winter. Thanks, Linus. Yeah, thank you. It's been a great been a great interview. It's been a great experience here in the heart of Nashville. <laughs> Thanks. Cheers. And that's it. Thanks again to Linus and all of the crew at Yazoo. If you're heading through Nashville, be certain to stop by and let them know you heard about Yazoo Brewing from the Brews Traveler. Also, I want to say uh, thank you to my friends Greg Reichart and Greg Kidwell. Uh, who made arrangements so I might park Brulissies in their parking garage so I could safely camp on the streets of Nashville, Tennessee. The tap room at Yazoo Brewing is located in the Gulch at 910 Division Street in downtown Nashville and is open seven days a week, Monday through Thursday, 3 to 9 p.m., Fridays from 2 to 9 p.m., Saturdays 11 a.m. to 9 p.m., and Sundays noon to 4 p.m. They are also open on Monday through Thursday from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. in the afternoon, so you might go and buy brews to go or souvenirs. You can also learn more about uh, Yazoo Brewing and their tour schedule. Just check out their website, yazoobrew.com. Hey, ha, da 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 da, yeah. Ha, hey. Cardi on scale of buco. What's the rumpus? Now it's time for What's the Rumpus with Tony. What's going on in the world of craft brewing? Hello, Tony. How you doing back in St. Louis? Doing real well, Alan. How are you? Where are you at nowadays? I am in Kiln, Mississippi, and Lazy Magnolia Brewing Company. I'm out here on the porch coming to you almost live on Tuesday morning. Uh, I've had an interesting trip. Yeah, how so? Well, the night before last, I stayed at Gulf Islands National Seashore, and I was visited while I was sitting out there, and I was drinking an IPA in the evening and just listening to the crickets and the frogs and all of the other sounds coming off of the bayou. And uh, I don't know what you call a group of raccoons, but five of them just kind of came up and looked at me as like, Wanted to know if I might have some food for them. I, if you go over to my Facebook page, uh, my personal Facebook page, there's some video of it. It was uh, quite, <laughs> it was quite hilarious. I was uh, video, I was taking video of one of them, and I was kind of following him around. And another one snuck up and pulled my IPA off of uh, the little table I had it sitting on next to my chair. It's. Uh, it was they were they were brazen. They had no fear. I, I talked to a park officer, a park ranger, I should say, uh, and the next morning, and she said, "Yes, they came up and stole a, a, a slab of ribs off a grill from some Ooh, wow. people not too long ago." She goes, "They have no fear." And uh, well, it sounds uh, like they have good taste too. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, they were fat. There wasn't a one of them that was skinny. <laughs> I mean, they they were they were fat. Anyway, so yeah, that was interesting. And then before that it was up at Sweetwater in Atlanta and before that Yazoo Brewing Company Linus Hall anyway so I'm I'm here at Lazy Magnolia and then tomorrow I'm off to Lost 40 Brewing in Little Rock and then I'll be home Thursday so 
fun. That sounds awesome. Anyway, nice taste uh, of the south. Yeah, it's you know it hadn't been bad. I mean, it, it's been a couple of warm days, but I had a lot of rain, and so it's uh, and a nice breeze. Uh, we're not far from the Gulf here uh, in Kiln, maybe ten miles at the most. So there's a nice breeze, and it's it's comfortable. So it's fantastic. I wish I was with you. Ah, well, I wish you could have made it. You and I were talking uh, last week about something that uh, I think a number of our listeners might be a little dismayed about. What did you find out about that? Sure. Well, it kind of skirts around a lot of the topics that we talked about. But, you know, we talk about a lot about, like, what makes craft beer craft. Um, and it's it's it can be, I mean, you know how it is when you go to the, the supermarket or the liquor store. I mean, there's just so many choices that you grab what, what looks good um, and maybe without quite knowing where it comes from. And unfortunately, sometimes it doesn't say on the label exactly where it comes from. And, and that's by design, I believe, because it was interesting. It grabbed uh, your attention and it grabbed mine, too. Uh, this article from the Chicago Tribune uh, by Josh Noel uh, talking about how there is kind of a new king in craft beer and it happens to be the same king that was the old king of the old pale loggers for decades bump. yeah right but yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting a, a decade ago when uh, InBev came in and, and bought Anheuser-Busch which is a you know an acquisition that made a lot of noise back here in Missouri but I mean it, it reverberated all, all around the world um at that time, Anheuser-Busch didn't make a single beer that qualified as craft. No. Um, you know, they had Tequiza once upon a time. Oh, God, that and, stuff was right? nasty. Oh, oh yeah, man, totally. that was horrible. They had Amberbach. Then they had, you know, they tried with some Michelob brands. Like, you know, they had a Hypervisin, I believe, and like a ginger wheat. Yeah. And even like a bourbon Cascale. Well, but mostly that, it was. That was what Florian with uh, UCBC, that's what brought him over here. Was right, the, exactly. the Michelob line, yeah. That's right. But other than that, I mean, you got Bud, Bud Light, Bud Ice, and until 2010, you had Bud Dry. Uh, but no, but no crafts. You could get Bud any way you wanted it. Um, but fast forward to today, and now the nation's largest craft beer company is Anheuser Busch InBev. Yeah. Um, and they did it not by experimenting with their own stuff, but they finally just kind of gave up on that and did it by acquisition. I guess if you can't beat them, buy them out, right? Right. Um, but between 2011 and 2017, they they bought uh, 10 different craft breweries. Um, Goose Island in Chicago, Ten Barrel in Oregon, Devil's Backbone in Virginia, Elysian in Seattle, Wicked Weed in North Carolina, uh, and Blue Point uh, in New York are, are just some of them. And they even, they even chugged down uh, Breckenridge, which is in Denver, Colorado, you know, right in the, stabbing at the heart of craft brewing country. Right. Um, and so uh, in July, Beer Marketers Insights, which is like trades news, a trade newsletter, reported that AB passed Boston Beer Company, uh, which makes Sam Adams, and uh, Sierra Nevada in terms of dollar sales. Um, over a year, the brands that they bought grew 20% to $107.3 million, and that leapfrogged Sierra Nevada, which just jumped 2% year over to $100 million. And uh, Boston Brew, which actually was going backwards, kind of that trend we talked about in a previous uh segment so uh and then that's only one metric that's sales in grocery stores and big box stores like walmart and drugs and, and convenience stores which is where you can get your your alcohol in some states still um but when factoring in draft and liquor store boston still remains ahead in terms of both volume and dollars uh and but this article and the experts say it's really only a matter of time uh before ab takes over there just um Especially as, you know, like companies like Sam Adams, they struggle, they're struggling against the wine and the liquors and the legal marijuana. Uh, it's a tough time for, for craft beer, and, and AB just kind of brings it home that way. Mm -hmm. um, 
and you know that, that it's, it's weird because as we talked about they were kind of once the antithesis to big beer uh, craft beer now has to be in the same game finding for that shelf space and that tap space right uh, and, and you notice the, the breweries I, I, I listed they're all over the place they're, they're Oregon they're New York they're, they're coast to coast north to south right uh, and that means that not only are the craft breweries competing with AB on a national and local, uh, you know, a, a global level, they're, they're they're competing in a regional and 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 local level as well um, for those tap handles. And it's AB, of course, brings that that arsenal of marketing dollars and distribution powers to bear. And it can be quite a it can be quite a daunting fight for the craft beer companies. Uh, yeah, and, and my worry is, and I'm I don't think this surprises anybody that's been around uh, the beverage business as long as I have. Uh, you know, the fact fastest growing segment over the last 20 years in the beer market has been craft. Anheuser-Busch, InBev, SAB, Miller Coors, they're all going to do the same thing, and that is they're going to compete. And whatever that means, whatever they have to do to do that, they're going to do it. Uh, my worry is, is that they're going to take their power of mass production and start really, really, really squeezing on price the independent mm-hmm. craft brewers. Uh, now, maybe they won't, but uh, if I were a betting man, I'd bet that they will. Well, this article already says that they already kind of start, they have started that, and that's kind of is the next step. And you're right, it's not just uh, AB InBev. They're the ones that have done it most successfully, but all of the big brewers are, are starting to do that. Right. Um, and, and what makes it tricky is there's really no way to know. Like, I was in, uh, in Wilkesboro, right. North Carolina, working on a story a few months ago when I, I wanted to sample local beer. And what I do is I go to like these local grocery stores and try to find their pick six so I can get a little bit right. of everything. And you know, I, I I got some wicked weed, and I did I didn't I wasn't aware of this because uh, bought them in tw- uh, May 2017. So it was did it, less did than it, a year. Did it say anything on the bottle about that? No, nothing. No, about not it. at all. Bruce, and if you go to their website, North Carolina. yeah, and if you go to the websites, like there's another like there's another one that I'm thinking of. Uh, I went to their website, and it's owned by SAB Miller, and it says nothing about that. I mean, maybe somewhere way, way down in the weeds it might mention it somewhere, but I didn't, like, I pulled it out, pulled it up on the phone just to look, and I already knew, but I wanted to see, and it said nothing about being uh, owned by uh, South African breweries. Right. No, that's, that's absolutely right. And craft beer is trying to fight back. I mean, we talked about the uh, the craft beer label, the upside down bottle, the the, the logo that, that goes on some beers, which none of the AB brands are eligible to have. So right. You won't see that on on any of those. Right. Um, and and they and you talked about this in your previous podcast, but the take the craft back uh, movement that they've tried to they tried to launch. Uh, still thinking that people, and I think I think discerning tasters still want that that local that local flavor. Um, right. But I mean, the, the the thing is, and the other, the flip side of this too is, I mean, just as a consumer, you want to fight for the little guys and stuff like that. But like I said, with the Wicked Weed, and again, I didn't had nothing to compare it to. I hadn't had it back when it was still independently owned. But I mean, it was it was damn good beer. I had their right. pernicious IPA, which was really tasty. Their uh, hot cocoa porter, which is right down my alley, was just a really refreshing, uh, chocolatey, but not too deep and dense uh, porter that, that hit the spot for me. So I mean. If, as long as the quality is still there, you know it, it's it's going to be it's going to be difficult to, to separate. But like like you said, they they've got the resources yeah, I, to really squeeze out. That's that's the thing is that I think they're going to try to competitively on price. They're going to try to really take it to the small guys. Um, right. But you know, only time will tell. 
We'll see. For sure. Yeah. No, for sure. Okay. And, and it's hard to be, it's hard to begrudge these craft brewers. I mean, no. you get into it for business, and no. it's I mean, I, it's, I was it's like, a tempting I, offer. Like, I take the Line and Kugel family. If they had not uh, sold out to Miller. Uh, years ago, they would have had to shut down the the operations in Chippewa Falls. As it is, that brewery is still going strong. People are still working there. They're still making beer. You know, it's still an asset to that community. Anyway, so we'll just have to sit and revisit this topic somewhere down the line and keep our eyes open and our ear to the ground and see what happens. What do you think? Yep. Right. I, I agree, and I, I, just like everything else, and we, we, we've hit on this as well. It's it's kind of up to the consumer to kind of find out, right? Know, to do the research, it is. It's, kind of it's your to re- Google it. It's right. If this is something that you are passionate about and concerned about, you know, do your due diligence, do your research, find out what you're drinking, and find out where it's coming from and who is making it. That's all I've got to say. Same, same here. Well, Tony and freelance journalist. Uh, thanks, Tony. I will see you Saturday. Yeah, hopefully so. All right, Wait. we've got uh, live Irish music at the pub this Saturday afternoon. So at my wife's pub, I should say. All right, that's right. I'll talk to you later, man. I'm going to go have a uh, blackberry sour right now. That sounds good. Happy trails. All right, see you, buddy. Take Bye. care. Begrudgers, your pushers and your shovers, the scurrying, the worrying, I'm gonna have some fun. You've been listening to The Bruise Traveler. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or check out our blog on website, thebruisetraveler.com. Cheers. And so that's it, kids. Thanks again for listening. Please check us out on Facebook and Instagram at the Bruise Traveler Podcast and on Twitter at the Bruise Trav LR. Please subscribe on iTunes. Give us a five star rating and a warm hug with a glowing review. It is always greatly appreciated. The soundtrack for the Bruise Traveler is provided by our friends Gaelic Storm. Check out their website, GaelicStorm.com. And while you're there, buy their new album, Go Climb a Tree. Also, check out their tour schedule and see when they will be coming to a venue near you. Marketing consultation is provided by Mission Digital Marketing. I'll be back home on Thursday this week, so maybe you can catch up with me at Patty Malone's. And uh, this Saturday afternoon, we're going to have a traditional Irish music session there at the pub featuring the talents of the Mid-Missouri Celtic Arts Association. It's always a good time. So if I don't see you there or at your favorite tap room, I'll see you right here on the podcast. Remember, everybody, take care of each other and take care of the earth. It's everything we've got. And as always, Marilee, you are the measure of my dreams, honey. Thanks again, everybody, and so long for just a while. Well, I was born very young. I grew up in me cradle. Chances are that when I die, it'll be of something fatal. So if you see me running, keep up by my side. That hurricane is coming, and there ain't no place to hide. Get your own life, this one's mine. And stop it, where? I'm done with you, you grudgers, you pushers and you shovers, the scurrying, the worrying, I'm gonna have some fun. So if you don't take a break, shut your hole. You're pausing my poor heart to wait to all you saints and sinners, you losers and you winners, it's the one more day you're
I'm done with all the stitching, the falling and the pitching, the striving and conniving. I'm heading for the pub. conscience with an empty purse than to get a bad opinion of myself with a full one. David Davy Crockett, 19th century American folk hero, frontiersman, soldier, and United States congressman. Born August 17, 1786 in Limestone, Greene County, what was then North Carolina, what is today Tennessee. Died March 6th, 1836, the Battle of the Alamo, San Antonio, Texas. <laughs> 